good morning. Welcome to Stuttgart Harvest Church. I'm glad to see you this morning. Glad that you are here. Um, we uh, are in part four of a four-part series. Even if you have missed the other three parts, you still picked a great day to be here. I'm glad that you're here, and today is going to be encouraging for you, I do believe. Uh, this whole Bible thing is amazing to me. It is just simply amazing. Regardless of whether you agree with me, I believe that the Bible is authoritative. I, I believe that there's authority in Scripture. But even if you're struggling with that, or you're, you have not maybe come to the same conclusion that I have, that's okay, because it is still an amazing, amazing book. Just think about it. Contained inside of what we call the Bible, we've got an assortment of all different kinds of writings. We have uh, letters like the ones that were written by Paul. We've got biographies like we have written uh, a couple of those. Matthew and Mark wrote some. We have uh, historical uh, travel logs like the book of Acts written by Luke. So many amazing things, and that's just simply in the New Covenant. It's just filled with amazing things. The New Covenant is actually 27 separate books that all come together to form what we call the New Covenant, and it was written 2,000 years ago. And yet, somehow, inside of those, we have one seamless story. And that's not even counting the Old Covenant. I mean, in the Old Covenant, well, that makes it even more amazing because those documents are even more ancient than the New Covenant. And altogether, the Bible is made up of 66 separate books written by over 40 different people over the course of thousands of years, and yet telling one seamless story. And we have summarized that story in this series by calling it the Great romance. And we believe that it all is telling this one giant romance of God's love for his creation. One unified story. That's what this whole thing is about. And in these books, I believe that God welcomes you and he welcomes me to join this great romance. We are all invited. Now, this morning, we're actually going to look at a romance that is in the Old Covenant, a romance um, that took place a long time ago. And really, to help us understand when this took place, um, it was uh, after Israel, the nation of Israel, had become a country, and they made it into the land that God called their promised land. And so, uh, but it's before God had allowed them to have their first king, okay? So it's after they made it to the promised land, but they don't yet have a king. And as the Bible describes what it was like during this time, it uses a phrase like this. It said it was a time when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Kind of sounds like today, right? Um, it, it, for them, it was a pretty dark time. Now, sometimes the nation of Israel followed God, but sometimes they didn't. They just couldn't give a rip, and they just kind of did what they wanted to do. We're going to be looking at a historical event today. So last week, we were looking at what's called a parable. It was a fiction, uh, a story that Jesus made up to help illustrate a point. But today, it's still 
illustrates a point, but what we're talking about today is a real historical event. It really happened. Now, there was a terrible famine in the land of Israel, and so um, people were having trouble finding and gathering and growing food. They were searching for food, including a man named Elimelech. Now, I know that doesn't roll off the tongue, and I may say it several different ways today, but Elimelech was an Israelite, and his name means God is my king. Names were very important back then. His wife, her name was Naomi. Her name means pleasant. That sounds good, doesn't it? Now, they had two sons, and I would think, man, names are so important. They must be really significant names for these sons. Sadly, here's what their names meant, their sons. The first son, his name meant unhealthy. Gee, thanks, Dad. The second son, a little worse. His name meant puny. Literally, that's what their names meant, and names were important. Can you imagine growing up with that? Anyway, the whole family, Elimelech, God is my king, Naomi, pleasant, and unhealthy and puny, all went off to search for food. They left Israel, so they probably sold their land, and it's more like not really a sale like we imagine sales today. It's more like a lease, a long-term lease, so they no longer had any benefits from the land at all. So they're like giving it up for maybe generations. So they basically lost their land. They move off to this other place called Moab. Boy, do I wish I had time to talk about Moab. All I'm going to tell you is this. Years and years and years earlier, back in the days of Abraham, uh, Abraham had uh, a relative, a nephew named Lot. To make a very long story short, Lot's two daughters are worried about not having any relatives. They get their father drunk to the point where he's just about passed out. They, uh, they do things that, that are going to make them pregnant and have babies. And one of those children from that relationship, and don't believe me, it's really in there, I promise. His name was Moab. Moab became a nation of people called the Moabites. Now get this. This man, Elimelech, he leaves Israel and he moves to Moab. The Moabites hated Israelites. The Moabites, listen, if the Israelites were running from God, the Moabites really were. I mean, part of their religion, they hated the God of Israel. Part of their religion, they sacrificed newborn babies to idols. They were way out there. They were bad folks. So why would Elimelech, a man whose name means God is my king, why would he sell his land in Israel and take his family and his sons to a cursed nation? Why would he do that? Okay, I'm going to tell you why. I have no idea. I have no clue why you would do that. I mean, why do I do the stupid things that I do? Why do you do the stupid things you do? And then we look back and we say, what? I knew better. I knew better. 
Well, this is one of those I know better moments, I guess. I don't know. So Elimelech is over there in this other country, and Elimelech dies. All right. Their two sons, unhealthy and puny, end up getting married to Moabite women. All right. Now, those two sons, they die. Probably because they were and puny. Yes. So they die. So now that leaves Naomi really alone in a foreign country. Now, in an ancient culture like this, I mean, it's, it doesn't sound as bad today, but in an ancient culture, I mean, then Naomi was somewhat, not somewhat, she was dependent upon having a male, a man in her home. That's the only way she could secure her land back in Israel. And that's the only way that really she could secure in a hard living time. That's the only way she could secure food. And I mean, she was in a very, very bad place. Naomi was in serious trouble. So that leaves Naomi and the two uh, widowed wives of unhealthy and puny. So what are her choices? Naomi cannot go back home to her parents. I mean, her parents by now have died. Naomi absolutely has nobody. She, simply put, she is alone, and she's just kind of adrift in a foreign country, a land that hates Israel. Now, somehow through the grapevine, Naomi gets wind, she gets word that things are better in the economy of Israel now. And Naomi says, you know what? I have a better chance of going back home and surviving in my homeland than I do here as a foreigner. Now, Naomi's home was Bethlehem in Israel. So, you know, Naomi says goodbye to uh, the two daughter-in-laws, and they're young. She's like, y'all can go. You can, you can hopefully, you know, you can replace unhealthy and puny. Maybe, maybe, just maybe you can meet Mr. Strong and Mr. Handsome, <laughs> and you'll have good lives. You can have children. You can have good lives. You'll, it, it'll be great. So she says goodbye, sends them off, and one of them takes off, but the other one, her name is Ruth, she's not going to have any of this. Here's what Ruth says. She stays with Naomi. Ruth stays there. And here's what Ruth says to Naomi. Listen to this. I want to read it. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Wow. Ruth took on an unknown future. She was a widow. That was her home. Moab was her home. And now she is going to head back to a land where she knows no one except Naomi, where she has few, if any, legal rights. And she's going to be in a place where she now is probably going to be ethnically um, criticized. She's going to face racial discrimination. Wow. Ruth abandons the idol-worshipping culture in which she grew up, and she goes and says, I'm going to serve God 
and I'm going to be one of his people. Wow. Here's what happens next. Chapter 1, verse 19. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, that's the hometown, the entire town was excited by their arrival. And they said, it really, is this really Naomi? The women asked. Now, apparently, um, it was a big deal that Naomi came back home. They were excited. They were amazed. Naomi responded in that conversation. She goes on to respond, yes, yes, it is me, but don't call me Naomi pleasant. Don't call me pleasant, she said. Instead, call me bitter, because that is what my life has become. Now, it just so happens that they arrive in Bethlehem um, during the barley harvest. This was the beginning of the harvest. And at this point in the story, that's the end of chapter one. All right, now it moves on to chapter two. And Ruth says to Naomi, she says, listen, Naomi, let me go and get us some food, all right? Let me go, and, and, and I'm going to go, and I can pick up some food after the harvesters of the barley harvest. Now, Ruth is referring to a Jewish law uh, called the law of gleaning. That means nothing to us, um, but here's what the law of gleaning was, and this is what it meant. If you were a landowner and you had a field and you were ready to harvest your field, um, you were allowed by the law of Israel, God's law, to make one pass through your field harvesting. Anything you missed, you had to leave. Anything you dropped while you were harvesting, any of the grain you dropped, you had to leave that as well. And the reason was you were leaving that to allow people who needed food in Israel to come behind you, and they were able to, to, to survive on what was left in the field. And here's what happens next. So the Bible says, so Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. That's the law. Uh, of, of gleaning. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz. Okay, I don't know what his name means. I didn't look that up. Sounds a lot like Bozo, but it is not. He's nothing like Bozo. He's a relative, this is what we're told, the relative of her, that's Ruth, relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. All right, so Boaz is related to the family. Now, at this point, Ruth and Naomi are dependent upon the law of gleaning. The only way they're going to survive is if they are able to pick up grain that has been left by those uh, who have been harvesting. This is a young Moabite woman. So she did not look like the Israelites, did not talk like the Israelites did not sound like them. She was definitely a foreigner. And she's in a field that's owned by Boaz, who is a relative of her deceased father-in-law. Now, Ruth does not know that. She just knows she's out there picking up some grain. Here's what happens next. Then Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? 
I love this. Now, if you look into uh, the original language, the Bible Old Covenant was written in uh, Hebrew. If you look into the original language, the Hebrew, the, the specific sentence used there by Boaz is this in Hebrew. Bow, chicka, wow, wow. He's like, did you see her? In uh, Italian, the Italian translation is mamma mia. And then, but in Arkansas, we would say it this way. Woo-wee! Dad, gum! Did you see that? Boaz, he was interested. He was kind of excited that this lady, whomever she was, had landed in his field. He was kind of excited. Boaz goes uh, over to her and, and he says, listen, um, you are welcome to continue gathering in my field as long as you're here. Don't even go to any of those other fields. <laughs> you just gather all you want from right here. Then Boaz goes to uh, his foreman and he says, listen, here's what I want you to do. Invite her to actually harvest alongside of you. So you don't have to wait and she didn't have to go off behind you and let, let her be right beside you in the middle of the harvest. And, and also, while you're harvesting, if you would grab some extra handfuls of grain and just kind of toss it right over there by where she is. All right, that's what I want you to do. Just make it a little easier for her to gather up food. So that's what they do all morning. And then about lunchtime, Boaz walks into the field and he invites Ruth. He's like, hey, listen, um, why don't you have lunch with me? And so Boaz has this great big picnic lunch. He invites her over and they have lunch together. And then Boaz packs up all the leftovers. Listen, Boaz knows what kind of condition. If she is having to glean, use the law of gleaning, he knows she's in a bad place. Packs up all the leftover lunch, and he sends it with Ruth back home. By the end of the day, after Ruth is done with her harvest, by the end of the day, she, um, let's see, she, after she has threshed uh, the barley, she ends up with a basket full, heaping full of barley. And that is so unusual. That was not the norm. That did. Usually they came back with a little she came back with a lot. And not only that, but so she goes home. She shows Naomi, look what, look what, how much I got. She didn't know how much she was supposed to get because she had never used the law of gleaning. But she comes back, look. And then she gives Naomi all the leftovers from lunch. And she said, look what the guy at the field, what, what he did. Look, and here's all the lunch. And so Naomi, being the wise and discerning woman that she is, she has a conversation with Ruth. And here's how that goes. She says, um, where did you gather all this grain today? Naomi asked, where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. And then so Ruth told her, her mother-in-law, she told her about the man whose field she had worked. And she said, the man I worked with today, his name is Boaz. And Naomi says, what? Boaz? No way. She says in verse 20, may the Lord bless him. Naomi told her daughter-in-law, 
he's showing his kindness to us, as well as to your dead husband, to Puny. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Family redeemer. We're going to come back to that. Now, we're going to jump forward in the story just a little bit. So, um, Ruth spends the entire harvest alongside of all the other harvesters. And so she is there, she's harvesting away and spends the entire harvest with them. All the way, it goes from that harvest directly into and through the wheat harvest. She was with them from late April all the way through most of June, almost every day. And then she would go back home and every evening, and she'd be with Naomi. That ends chapter 2. So let's talk about this family redeemer. It's the same thing. You can also call it a kinsman redeemer. Family redeemer, kinsman redeemer, the very same thing. So here's what this means. According to God's law, if an Israelite got financially in trouble, they could sell slash lease their land, or they could sell slash lease themselves into slavery for a period of time. Now, if they leased their land, they were still the owners of the land, but they just couldn't benefit from anything of that land at all. They did not get to benefit it. It was as if it was no longer theirs. But when you leased your land like that, um, they would write it all up in a, in a deed. They would roll that deed up. They would put a seal on it so it wouldn't be opened. But on the outside of that deed, they would write, here's what you can do to redeem, to buy back, to set right, to make right again your land. Here's what you can do to redeem your land. It was written on the outside. In other words, this is what it will take for you to be made whole again. This is what has to happen for all things to be set right again. And according to the law, that land could be redeemed, but it could only be redeemed by a near kinsman. And they would do that on your behalf. They would redeem the land for you. They could buy back the lease. That is the kinsman redeemer. And here's why that's significant. When Naomi hears Ruth described to her Boaz, that's the field she was in. And when Ruth describes the special treatment that Boaz showed to, to, to Ruth, Naomi immediately realizes, okay, Boaz might be willing to act as our kinsman redeemer, and he might be willing to buy back, to redeem, to set this right for us, which will take care of our future. Now, there's a second law in Israel that is also going to be a part of this. This second law is called the Leverite marriage. See, when a widow in Israel had no children, like Ruth was a widow, she was a foreigner, but she married an Israelite, and she had no children, no next of kin. 
she could go to a near kinsman and ask him to marry her. And that way he could give her children and thereby redeem her family lineage. Okay, so here are the requirements in order to be a kinsman redeemer. Three requirements. Here's the first one. You had to be a near kinsman. And when I say near, you had to be the closest relative to that person. Secondly, you had to be able to do this. In other words, you had to have the financial means to take care of all the finances in this and set up the future for this person. Third thing, you had to be willing to do this. Those three things had to be met by the kinsman redeemer. Now, here's the thing, though. He could refuse and say, no, I don't want to do it. But if he did it, he had to meet those three requirements. Now, if he did refuse, oh, bad deal. This is a shame-honor society. If you refused that, it would have been piles and piles of shame upon that person, probably for the rest of their life. And as a, just a, as a, a symbol of that, if you refused to be someone's kinsman redeemer, you had to take your shoe off and give them your shoe. I know, weird, right? Crazy. But that's what you had to do. You had to take off your shoe. So you're walking around town with one shoe, which I, we don't want to do that even today. You want to go to Walmart today, this afternoon, and wear one shoe? No, it's kind of embarrassing. The kinsman redeemer, he's going to have to walk around with one shoe. And it was a sign of, this man's been shamed. He's been shamed. Now, that's the way it worked. I know that doesn't make sense to us today, but that's, that's how it worked then. Ruth didn't really understand all this because she was a Moabite. She really had no idea. This was all new to her. But Naomi, she's Israelite. She knows all of this. And Naomi sees the possibility that we might get a happily ever after ending after all. This tragedy might turn out to be a great romance. Now, that was the end of chapter two. Chapter two. Now let's move into chapter three. So we're at the end of the harvest, and now we're going to do some threshing. So we've got a few pictures on the screen here. This is what the threshing was. At the end of the wheat harvest, it's time to thresh. We've got three pictures. Uh, sometimes they would get animals to thresh. They would walk all over the wheat trying to separate the uh, grain from uh, the straw. Sometimes they would put heavy weights or even kids on sleds, and they would drag those sleds around, and it's just separating the grain from the straw. Once it's separated, they would have two piles. Now, no, they'd have one pile, one great big pile like that. But then they would get someone to take all of that material and toss it up in the air. They would usually do this kind of on the side of a mountain um, where there was a nice uh, continuous gust of wind, not a gust, just wind blowing up the side of a mountain. And they would toss it in the air. The heavy grain would go a few feet and fall in the wind, but the straw was so light, it would go feet further and fall. So as they're threshing, they would end up with two piles, a pile of grain and then a pile of straw, and the straw they would burn. That's how they threshed. And threshing was a big, big deal. Um, it was extremely important. The Lord of the harvest, the owner of the land, would be there for the threshing. And in fact, they would all camp out during the threshing days because they were protecting uh, their 
their livelihood and their future. They had to protect that grain. But it was a celebration. All the people there working together, it was a celebration. They would thresh during the day and they would celebrate in the evenings. It was a big deal. It was a party, a celebration. Naomi tells Ruth now, she says, Ruth, here's what you need to do. She says, I want you to go clean up. I want you to put on your finest, finest clothes. And I want you to go to the celebration after they're done threshing today, go to the evening celebration. And I want you to watch Boaz, watching as the celebration is winding down, see where he goes to camp. Usually the Lord of the harvest would camp right beside the grain or very near it. See where he camps. And then once he's asleep, go over, slip over there. And I want you to lay down at his feet. Now, this sounds scandalous to us today. This sounds almost like she's propositioning him. Ruth, uh, Naomi says, once you're laying down there, because Na Ruth knows none of this. This is all Israeli stuff. She says, uncover his feet. In other words, take the end of his garment, and I want you to kind of put it over you a little bit, all right? Again, this sounds scandalous, but there was this was not scandalous at all. This was not Ruth propositioning Boaz at all. It was nothing like that at all. And so here's how this plays out. And Naomi tells Ruth what to do, and then this is how that plays out. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, and they had a great harvest, no wonder, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain. He was the Lord of the harvest. That's where he's going to sleep to watch it. That is where the Lord of the harvest, the boss, slept to protect his harvest. Here we go. And he went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet with that garment, and she lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly awoke. He turned over, and he was surprised to find a woman laying at his feet. Who wouldn't? Who are you? He asked. Because it's kind of dark, and he's just waking up, not sure. You know, he's like, and here's what happened. I'm your servant, Ruth, she replied. She said, spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. All right. I know this sounds shady. She's asking for the hem, the very bottom part of his garment. And on the very part of his garment, here's what we don't know because we're not Israelis. On the very bottom, the hem of his garment would be embroidered or sewn into that his entire family history, his family tree. Almost if you think of it like a family crest, a family seal. Um, we're used to seeing uh, when military um, men are in their dress uniforms, we see uh, all of their ranks up on their sleeve, and we see all of the, the medals that they've received, right? We see all of that, and we see their rank, we see their order, we see their importance. It's all on their sleeve. It's similar to that, only this was all on their him and the hem of their garment of the of the the patriarch of the home the hem would express his authority 
over that home. It was all in almost like that crest, like his status in the family, all within that hymn, sewn into that hymn. In fact, sometimes when someone, a, a man like that was, uh, was, was making a deal or signing a contract or, or signing uh, a covenant, sometimes he would take the hem of his garment and he would press it into fresh clay, and it would leave an imprint, like a stamp. It was like his personal stamp signature. It, was, it would impress his authority, his family tree. All of his status would be imprinted into that. In fact, um, sometimes you find in the Old Covenant, you would see that someone would cut away the hem of someone's garment of a man. That was as if they were stripping that man of his honor, of his status. We see that in places. That's, the hem of the garment was very important. And so by no means was Ruth propositioning Boaz, not at all. Here's what Ruth was saying. That action that Ruth didn't really understand, but Naomi did, that action was saying this to Boaz, will you, Boaz, fulfill your role as kinsman redeemer, my kinsman redeemer, Boaz, will you marry me? Will you place the hem of your garment over me? In other words, Boaz, will you add me to your family tree? Will you add me to your house? Will you add me to your family line? Will you marry me? Will you place me, Boaz? Will you place me under your wing? Will you place me under your care forever? Now, Boaz. He was not offended. In fact, Boaz was happy. Boaz wanted to be her kinsman redeemer. Boaz wanted to perform all of this. He wanted to be her husband. And he said, yes, I will. And in that moment, as we're reading this amazing, uh, great love story, we, we realize this is going to have a happy ending after all. Until Boaz says, but I will, I want to, but I'm not your closest relative. There's one closer. And that one closer relative He's actually your kinsman redeemer, not me. But before, I mean, our, our hopes are like right here. We're like, oh, this was about to happen. This was the, the romance of the century, the love story of the century. Now suddenly, not Boaz, but some bozo gets in the way. Wow. Before Ruth leaves, Boaz says, he's your kinsman redeemer. He actually has this role, and I'll go find out for you if he will. I'll go find out. Now, before she leaves, Boaz gives her six scoops of grain to take home to Naomi. 
it's like, what is this? My consolation prize? What's going on here? She has no idea why he gives her six scoops of grain. She's a Moabite. She has no clue about this. But when she gets home, she tells Naomi, hey, by the way, he also gave me six. If, if this is anything, here's six scoops of grain. And when Ruth gives her those six scoops of grain, Naomi realizes the secret Israeli message. <laughs> Naomi says, okay, Ruth, don't worry. Boaz is not going to rest until he settles this matter. Here's what the secret message was, and only the Israelites knew it. Boaz was saying, yes, God worked six days at creation, but on the seventh, he rested. And Boaz was telling Naomi, hey, listen, I'm not going to rest until I get this settled. I'm going to take care of this as soon as possible. And here's where the story goes. Chapter four, we're in chapter four now. Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Now, here's what that means. When you're at the city gate, um, that means you are important. If you're at the city gate, you're one of the business people. Um, you can kind of look at the city gate kind of like the city hall. So because he had a seat there, you can kind of think of Boaz as the mayor of Bethlehem. So he had leadership. He had influence, kind of like the mayor. Just then, the family redeemer that he had mentioned came by. So Boaz called out to him, hey, come over here, sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. And the fact that that man came straight over, did what Boaz said, it's showing that he was had no hesitation. He knows Boaz is an important leader. Very interesting. According to Israeli law, it should be Ruth having this conversation with this other guy. But Boaz said, I'm going to do this for you. Interesting. So, Boaz steps up and takes care of all the, the paperwork for Ruth. Here's what happens. Verse 2. Then Boaz called 10 leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. In other words, something important was getting ready to happen, and he needed 10 witnesses to make sure it was all done right and that everything that happened was going to happen right. Verse 3, and Boaz said to the family redeemer, you know Naomi, obviously it was his relative, who came back from Moab. She is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. In other words, here he's saying she's selling it, which means really she's looking for someone to buy it for her. So selling means buying back here. And Boaz is, is saying, this ground, this land is ready to be purchased. Whoever purchases this land will have more land. She only needs a kinsman redeemer. That's all it's going to take in order for her to get this land back. So another word for kinsman redeemer is called goel, all right? Goel. That word right there also means kinsman redeemer. So for one to be a, 
a Goel, I want to remind you, he had to be her nearest kinsman. He had to be able to do it, have the money to do it, and he had to be willing to do it. Verse 4, Boaz says, I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. In other words, if you want more land, here we go. You're, you're the nearest relative. You can do that if you want more land. And, and uh, you have to buy it here right now in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, well, let me know right away, because I am next in line to redeem it after you. And the man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. Wow, wow, wow. And our hearts sink again. Because now here we have this Bozo ruining perhaps the greatest love story in the Old Covenant. Wow. We see the devotion of Ruth to Boaz. We see the, the, the care and concern that Boaz has for Ruth. And now we see it all ending like this. This great romance is coming to a grinding halt. But Boaz gives the man some more details. He goes on verse 5. Then Boaz told him, oh, of course, though, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth. The Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. See, as the kinsman redeemer, you not only got to buy the land, but you had to take all the responsibilities that went with it. And in this case, a Moabite widow. So they were enacting what is called in the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant law, the Leverite marriage. Ruth, you have to marry her. It comes with the land. And his response, he said, well, then I can't redeem it. The family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. In other words, I know how we feel about Moabites, and I'm not willing to be treated and possibly lose the respect and the business of other people. I'm not willing to go near a Moabite woman. No, I can't do it. It's going to endanger my own state. You redeem the land, Boaz. I can't do it. And those were the words that Boaz wanted to hear. That's exactly what he wanted to hear. He said, you can redeem the land. I'm not going to marry Ruth. You can. And so now it's time for the walk of shame. It goes like this. Now, those days, it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase. In other words, I'm passing on this. I'm not going to do this. Uh, to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. And this publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal. He handed it to Boaz and said, you buy the land. And so he leaves one sandal in shame away. And then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, you are all witnesses of this today, he said. I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, of unhealthy, and of puny. And with the land, I have acquired Ruth. And he is saying, I have purchased all of this. And she, Ruth, will now be my wife. Interesting. The Moabite widow of Puni 
to be my wife, he says. This way, she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and inherit the family property here in her hometown. And you are all witnesses of this today. Now think with me. Why would Boaz, a major influential Jew, consider marrying a Moabite woman? The other redeemer refused to do it. So why would Boaz do it? It it, it goes beyond the fact that he was hopelessly in love with Ruth. It's beyond that. Why would setting our American version of love aside, why would he do that? Why would he risk everything and marry a foreigner? Why? Because. Boaz's mother was Rahab, which may mean nothing to you. Rahab was not Israeli. She was an Amorite. I told you how the nation of Moab came about. The Amorites came about from the other daughter of Lot. And the Moabites and the Amorites hated each other. And the Moabites and the Amorites hated Israel. But Boaz's mother was an Amorite, Rahab. Very quickly, she was the one in this town of Jericho. Before uh, Jericho, it was the last Amorites in that town. They were the last thing really standing in the way of the Israelites moving into the promised land. And so... This was the strongest nation standing in their way. And so they sent some spies into Jericho and they said, okay, we need to find out how we can conquer this land. And they go in, the spies go in, and this prostitute Rahab recognizes that they're foreigners, recognizes if I know they're foreigners, everyone else will, and they're going to kill you, so you better hide in here. And Rahab protects them from everyone in the city. She saves their lives. She lets them escape out to safety to go back home. But because she did, here's what happens. Those spies, they go back and they tie a red cord around the window of her home so that as they get ready to conquer this nation, they can rescue Rahab who rescued these spies. And that's what happens. They go rescue her as this city is being destroyed Rahab becomes part of the Israeli nation. Rahab submits her life to God, the God of Israel. Rahab marries an Israelite. Rahab, the former prostitute, the the Amorite, now uh, living with Israel, she has a child whose name is Boaz. Boaz has no trouble understanding grace. He was born from grace. He has no trouble understanding that he can redeem Ruth, a Moabite. Wow. His mother was a prostitute saved by and changed by God. Boaz is a product of that grace, and he has no problem being the redeemer 
for a Moabite who says, I want to serve your God. I want to be among your people. Your God is my God. This is, he has no trump. And so what we see is the scarlet thread that shows up in his mother's life, Rahab. We now see a scarlet thread in the life of Boaz and Ruth. And that scarlet thread continues. Because when you come to Matthew chapter 1 in the New Covenant, and we are getting the genealogy from Matthew of Jesus Christ. Here's what Matthew writes. Verse 5, Matthew chapter 1. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother, that's his wife, his wife was Rahab. Boaz, this is the family tree. This is like the crest, the hem of the garment. This is the family tree here. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. So Rahab the Amorite, Gentile, Ruth the Moabite Gentile show up in the family tree bloodline. Who's next? So Ruth and Boaz have a child. His name is Obed. He has a child whose name is Jesse. Jesse has a child whose name is David. David becomes king of Israel. And it is from the line of David, the bloodline of David, which includes Boaz and Ruth and includes Rahab. The bloodline of, from the bloodline of David comes Jesus by God's plan. From this real life historical romance. Ruth, saved by the kinsman redeemer, Boaz. We get a picture, not just the bloodline, but a picture of what is coming in the new covenant of Jesus Christ. God, who gives us our kinsman Redeemer. How did a cursed Moabite woman named Ruth get into the line of the Messiah, Jesus, the bloodline? The answer is because God provided for her a kinsman redeemer named Boaz. How does a lowly kid from Arkansas get into the kingdom of God? Answer because God sent him and provided for him a kinsman redeemer named Jesus. Boaz is an old covenant picture of a kinsman redeemer that we're going to experience in the new covenant through Jesus Christ, who bought you for himself. He bought you away from the curse of death, and he made you his own part of the beloved bride of Christ and blesses all generations. Listen to how Paul words this about our kinsman redeemer. 
But when the right time finally came, God sent his own son, that's our kinsman redeemer, um, to redeem the whole world. He goes on, he came from the son of a human. Now, in order to redeem us, the price was going to be high. The price was going to be perfection. And the only way we could have a price paid for perfection was for God, who is the only perfect, to become human. And when God became human through Jesus, he became our kin, our kinsman. It says he came as the son of a human mother. Well, that gives us the first check there. He is our near kin. And he lived under the Jewish law. In other words, he lived the perfect life that no one else could have lived. He did it. He did it. That means the second rule is checked. He was able. In fact, he was the only one able with the means to pay the price for the sins of the world. So he lived under the Jewish law to redeem. Not only did he hit the first one, he was our kin. Not only the second one was he able, but he got the third one because he was willing. He was willing to pay the price and to purchase us back, to redeem us, to buy us back, those who were under the law. Those of us who were destitute like Ruth, like you, like me, he was willing to buy us back so that we might become God's children. In other words, he placed us under the hem of his garment. Wow. Wow. Jesus made us his own, our kinsman redeemer, and it is all grace. Listen, scripture is made up of 66 books written by over 40 different people over the course of thousands of years, and yet somehow it is all telling one seamless story in God's attempt and his completion of rescuing you and me and the mess that we have made out of our lives and out of creation. And in this historical romance in the Old Covenant, that's part of this story of redemption, Ruth and Boaz become a picture of what Jesus was going to do in the New Covenant as our kinsman redeemer, what he did for me and what he did for you. And like Ruth, Jesus could have left us. Boaz could have left her high and dry and destitute. He could have left us as well. But because he was our kinsman by God's plan and God's design, because he was able, because he was willing, he chose to pay the full price and to rescue, to redeem you and me. But just as Ruth had to go to Boaz and say, will you be my kinsman redeemer? So must you go to Jesus and say, will you? Take my life. Will you? And I promise you, according to what I hear in Scripture and what I read in Scripture, Jesus is waiting on you to say, Will you be my Redeemer? At Stuttgart Harvest Church and the church in Malvern, we use the phrase, Jesus, will you be the boss of my life? Because it just makes sense in our language today. 
Will you be the boss of my life? Everything about my life, I have been the boss of, I have been in control of, but now I'm asking you to be my boss. And that, in the words of the new covenant earlier on, and, and the old covenant, that is saying, Jesus, will you be my redeemer? Have you admitted to Jesus that you need him as your redeemer? Have you even recognized in your life that you are in need? This morning, I just beg you, I simply say, if you have not yet said to Jesus, I want to make you, ask you to be the boss of my life, will you do that today, right now, this very moment? You don't have to say it out loud. You don't have to scream it out in your heart right now. Communicate with God. I promise you, he's listening. Will you say, will you be my boss, the boss of my life, my redeemer? You were able. You're my kin. You were willing. And if you've said yes to Jesus, yes, will you be the boss of my life? Yes, you can have this life. Then for the rest of your life, I challenge you this. Get to know Jesus, your Redeemer. Get to know him like Ruth got to know Boaz. Listen, I promise. It's a romance worth exploring. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful. I'm so very, very grateful that you were willing, you were able, and that you came to this earth as a man which made you our kin. God, I pray that there's someone here today who's saying yes to you for the very first time. And I pray there are many, many more who are saying, I want to dedicate my life to getting to know you more and more. My kinsman redeemer. Amen.